0: We're going this morning, you going alright? It's great to see you all here. You guys are, really are the um, cream of the St. Augustine's crop coming on the long weekend, aren't you? You're really um, showing those others up, which I like. To those others who are listening on the podcast, have a great time on your holiday. I hope you're having a good time away. Awesome. Um, no resentment there at all. Um, But what I want to do uh, this morning is I want to dive really straight in, jump straight in with a a reading actually from the end zone of the Bible, from the book of Revelation. Um, Now, I know what you're thinking, Um, Andy, do you mean to tell me that we're actually going to have a talk at St. Augustine's that doesn't begin in Genesis? (laughs) Sorry, Newt. Uh, That's exactly what's going to be happening today. Um, That's what happens when you give the mic to the worship leader. As the musicians like to say, uh, don't bore us, get to the chorus. So we're heading to Revelation today. I hope you're up for it. That's where we're going. And uh, in chapters four and five of Revelation, we're given this absolutely amazing, this stunning glimpse, really, into the dimension that we know as heaven. This is actually, it's the only place in the entire New Testament that we're given uh, this picture of a large group gathered Christian worship. And in these two chapters, in this vision, uh, John witnesses both the sights and the sounds of heavenly worship. And the wonderful uh, Katrina Burt is going to come and read a few verses for us uh, this morning. And as she comes, just a quick uh, backdrop is that St. John, who's the writer, he's had this incredible experience where he's been lifted up by the Holy Spirit um, into this heavenly dimension. And he sees and he hears um, the most, really, it's insane, really, the most insane stuff. Um, So, prepare your imaginations. Are you ready to hear this? This is is a psychedelic kaleidoscope of language and imagery coming from Katrina Burt. Thank you, Katrina. Thank you.
1: So, this is a reading from the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verses 2 to 11, and chapter 5, verse 6, and 11 to 14. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder, In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. And together we pray, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, as now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.
0: Thank you so much, Katrina. Didn't you do well? Come on, that was amazing. Uh, I did tell you, I did warn you that this was going to push the boundaries of our imaginations. Um, and uh, as a little gift to you, um, I have uh, this week done a little Google image search to see just what we can find out there on Revelation 4 and 5. And so I want to present to you this little gift. It's a whole new genre of art. Um, I like to call it Photoshop-elliptic fantasy. <laughs> so I don't, know, I don't know what we think. This is, this is insane, isn't it? I mean... It's a bit crazy. Uh, they're loving the filters. They're my personal favorite. This is my personal favorite. <laughs> I feel like the, the creature with the man's face, I think they've just grabbed Chuck Norris and put him on the front, uh, front there. Um, but here we go. There we go. And, um, these, these images might give us um, a few little giggles, uh, but I think um, maybe somehow they raise a bit of a question for us, and it's this question that I'm going to go for uh, this morning. Uh, what if the greater realm of reality is, in fact, the invisible realm? We're going deep. We're going straight in. What if the greater realm of reality is, in fact, the invisible realm? And I'm contending this morning that just because we might need to flex our imaginations to grasp it does not mean the invisible realm is imaginary now hold that thought i just want to rewind a little we uh, as newt mentioned we're in the middle of this teaching series Tefano ateatua and uh, this morning what i want to do is really draw our attention and uh, try and bring out something of the characteristics of what it is for us to participate in the great big family of god and much like a, a family tree, uh, where the branches uh, are connected horizontally um, to the current generation, uh, to our, our fellow brothers and, brother, brothers and sisters um, across Auckland, across Aotearoa, and around the world. And Newt has done a wonderful job over the, these last three weeks of really waking us up to the reality that the, the global Christian church is far more diverse, far more connected, far more expansive than perhaps we ever dared realise. Um, So we're connected horizontally into this thing, but we're also connected uh, vertically through the trunk to generations who have gone before. And when a tree is uh, cut down, we get this little glimpse, don't we, into the story of the tree uh, through the growth rings uh, around its heart. And the cool thing about these uh, beautiful, really, these beautiful uh, growth rings is that as the tree grows... Uh, Each one represents a season when it was on the outside of the tree. Uh, We really are currently on the outside of, we're the current outside ring of the tree of the church, so to speak. We are part of this global church uh, that in this season, but one day soon enough, hopefully not too soon, uh, but we will become a ring uh, within the trunk, joining 2,000 years Of history, 2,000 years and more of generations who have really been defined uh, by one simple but significant thing, and that is who we worship. Who we worship. It's certainly not unique uh, that we worship. Everyone worships something, it's in our DNA. Uh, To be human is to worship. The only choice we get in the matter is who. And what sets uh, the the Christian Fano apart is that we give our ultimate worship to God, to the God of our spiritual ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, the God of the now global church, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so, this morning, as we think about uh, how we worship together as Fano. As with any family, uh, a certain, there are certain ways of doing things, right? Uh, each family has its own code or culture uh, of how we do things around here. And this morning, what I want to do is to draw our attention to a, a treasured family heirloom uh, that has been passed down from generation to generation and has reached us. And that is this little line, blink and you miss it, uh, from our call to worship. Right there in the center there, lift up your hearts, we lift them to the Lord. Lift up your hearts, we know how this goes. I don't know how many times that we have said this together as a community over the last few years, but these particular words, they have a rich heritage. This simple call and response sequence dates to at least the third century, most likely used in a hymn in worship in the synagogue. It's still used in the Roman Catholic Church, and the Orthodox Church, and all the churches of the Reformation, including our Anglican tradition. The original Latin, and I'm no Latin scholar, so I may be saying this wrong, but um, the original Latin is sersum corda. sursum corda, which literally means up hearts. Up hearts, I love that. And because we say uh, these words together week after week, Um, I thought it would be just worthwhile zeroing in a little bit, zooming in, um, to try and add a a bit more dimension and depth um, to our worship life together. Uh, And excuse the pun, but are we up for that this morning? Sorry, that's terrible. Can we take that out of the podcast? I don't know. Okay, so um, when Chloe or whoever is leading our worship, um, says to us, lift up your hearts, and we all thunder back, uh, we lift them to the Lord. What is going on here? What's going on? And uh, I mean, clearly, though this is not an exact uh, quotation, uh, these words are biblical, uh, which is a good place to start, right? Um, I think we've got the next slide. Uh, on the, in the Old Testament book of Lamentations, we read this. Let us lift up our hearts as well as our hands to God in heaven. Uh, King David in open Psalm 25 uh, with these words, "To you, O Lord, I uh, lift up my soul, O oh my God, in you I trust." Interestingly, soul and heart tend to be used interchangeably throughout Scripture, so don't get hung up on that. Um, and then in Colossians, The Apostle Paul in the New Testament encourages us to set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So we read about this idea in Scripture. Uh, We even have exemplars like King David uh, lifting up his heart. But what is it that we're talking about when we talk about our heart? Well, in our culture... Uh, as well as the obvious kind of vital physical organ organ, uh, beating in our chests. Our heart is primarily connected to our emotions and our feelings, especially the whirlwind emotions of romantic love. Without doubt, I'm sure you'd agree, the impulse of Western culture is a complete allegiance to your heart, complete authenticity, authenticity to your heart. I mean, whatever you do, Don't follow your heart, said no one ever in 2021. In the Bible, however, the heart is much more than this. Your heart is the very center of your life. It's like your operating system. It's your inner life. It's your spiritual life, your choices, uh, your emotions, your character, and it involves your will. Your heart is the, the deepest part of your personhood integrating uh, every aspect of your wonderfully complex life. It's from your heart that your desires develop. It's where your loves and your longings originate. That's why the writer of Proverbs, uh, following a lengthy list of parental advice around the nature of wisdom, spells it out saying, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Everything you do flows from it. So in essence, your heart is the whole of who you are and how you are. Your heart is the whole of who you are and how you are. So when Chloe gets on the mic and says lift up your hearts, she is inviting us to engage our entire being, to lift up our whole self. Not the self you wish you were, or perhaps the bits you might consider to be presentable, to God. And uh, if you're anything like me, I know there'll be a few in the room where there's kind of this internal uh, perfectionist, uh, achiever thing going rattling on inside, and really we just want to be seen for the best things that we can do. Um, and we don't really want to get vulnerable, we don't really want to be um, open and for people to see that actually beyond uh, the surface. Uh, actually, it's a fragile. Heart that we have to give to God. Actually, sometimes it's a broken heart that we give to God. We don't often want to uh, feel like that. But the truth is uh, that this is actually a liberating reality check moment of gathering up the beautiful complexity and even um, our hidden hypocrisy of who we are and uh, we're bringing our entire being and lifting it heavenward. I love how uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher from London, he vividly vividly describes uh, what's going on here. He says this, True worship may be described as the soul rising from earth to have fellowship with heaven. Very often the soul cannot rise. She has lost her wings and is heavy and earthbound, more like a burrowing mole than a soaring eagle. At such dull seasons, we must exert all our powers to lift up our hearts. Let faith be the lever, and grace be the arm, and the dead lump will yet be stirred. But what a lift it has sometimes proved. I love what, how the old schoolers just have a way of kind of really saying how it is. But I wonder if we're honest, this is, this is probably um, how we often turn up on Sunday mornings. Perhaps, maybe, maybe I'm the only, only one, I'm not sure. Um, but but somewhere between Sundays, we kind of this thing goes on where we um, lose our wings. We become earthbound, uh, more like burrowing moles than soaring eagles. I love that. Uh, but thankfully, uh, God is not opposed to our effort. God is opposed to our earning it, but He's not opposed to um, our effort. So I think that we would do well to hear Spurgeon's advice and his instruction and exert all of our powers to lift up our hearts to God. I think this leads nicely to uh, the next obvious question, which is to whom are we lifting up our hearts? Or in another part of the Anglican liturgy, uh, the response is this. Uh, We say, um, lift up your hearts, and the response is where Christ in glory reigns. And uh, so you'll probably see where this is going. But returning to our passage of Revelation, this kaleidoscopic vision. Um, actually, I wonder when we, when we hit Revelation, we, 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 we sometimes we um, bring this idea, which maybe is a bit unhelpful. And the idea being that, oh, Revelation, that's kind of about the future it's kind of, I've got enough going on in my life right now. I've got enough on my plate um, to think about today, let alone tomorrow, let alone the end times, whatever that is. But whilst this vision that St. John's has is, um, certainly points to the future recreation and restoration of the world, this is not primarily a vision or a picture uh, of the future. This is actually a picture or a vision of now. This is what's going on now. And sometimes I think when we come to worship, Sunday mornings, here we are. Uh, It can feel like it's just us and these four salmon-colored walls um, singing our simple songs together. Incidentally, that's why we have the lights dim so low, because I don't know how you could really focus on the Lord um, with this color going on. But the truth is, there is a much uh, greater reality are going on. And to worship is to actually encounter reality. To worship is to come into contact with reality. And that's what we so desperately need, is actually this reality check. We want to live in reality. So what do I mean by that? It all sounds a bit strange. Well, if, the, if, if what I said earlier, if the greater realm of reality is this invisible realm, then to enter into worship is actually to join our forefathers and mothers, the saints of old and the whole host of, se- host of heaven, gathered around the throne in this unceasing praise. It's to join the song that goes holy, 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 as if with every inhale, another facet of the one seated on the throne is revealed to us. And we can't help but exhale or respond in worship. And as this name "Revelation" kind of suggests, it's this pulling back the curtain. It's kind of actually having a peek into reality. It's revealing what is going on uh, right now. And it's important, I think, that we grab this, because it really sets up it sets us up on the right foot as we begin to worship. That it's not us who it's not on us to get the party started. We are invited to exert all our powers, lift up our hearts and to join this party, to join the party that is already going on. So uh, please hear me. In one sense, this can sound, this kind of, I don't know, talking these cosmic ideas, can kind of sound a bit simple or straightforward. But I think this reality of um, this heaven and earth dynamic that's going on in our worship is actually quite gritty. And um, there's a kind of a rawness to it, which I don't want to just, gloss over. And this sequence uh, of John's uh, vision in heavenly worship that we're talking about in Revelation, it actually flows out of his uh, seven letters to the early churches of Asia. And uh, these are powerful letters, they're poignant letters uh, of encouragement and critique to these churches, these followers of Jesus who uh, were facing some serious, serious challenges and opposition. These communities were seeking to uh, swim against their cultural tide, perhaps in much the same way that we are seeking to practice a way of life that, well, I guess, let's be honest, the, the Jesus way doesn't exactly go with the flow of contemporary culture, right? So for both the um, the early church and for us, uh, this juxtaposition, this um, this flow of verses 2 and 3, going into verses 4 and 5, reveals the complete reconfiguration of the world. It's a rewriting of reality. Here we see the details of time and place, the details of um, our trials and temptations, our challenges, actually fading into the timelessness uh, and reality of God enthroned over all of creation. To live well on this earth, we need this heavenly perspective. You might be um, facing some seemingly unsurmountable challenges in your life. Um, Maybe it's a, I don't know, maybe it's a work situation that's just gone way south, seems irretrievable. Maybe it's a relationship that's been fractured and feels like it's beyond repair. Maybe it's a health challenge that is just... I don't know, it just feels like it's ongoing assault. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe you're feeling the mounting cultural pressure and spiritual onslaught to actually just to give up the ghost and throw in your faith. The truth is that um, sitting in this room, there'll be a bunch of scenarios like these. This is just the reality of our lives. And yet, this ultimate context that we're tapping into Uh, in Revelation, this ultimate reality, this great reality over all of their challenges and over all of our challenges, is this vision, this cosmic vision of God uh, ruling from his throne. Not some tyrant king or distant deity, but the one revealed to us as the slain and risen lamb of God, given for the life of the world. This is the beautiful one who we are lifting our hearts to in worship. And the Christian claim really is that the throne sets the tone. Um, Ultimate reality, albeit invisible but not imaginary, is that every nation, tribe, and creature in heaven and on earth is caught up in this wonderful scene of worship. This is our counterclaim on the nature of reality and right at its heart, I think, is this gritty question of trust. I mentioned it earlier, but in Psalm twenty-five. Oh, by the way, there's only three parts of this talk. <laughs> Don't freak out. In Psalm um, Psalm twenty-five, David, King David, the author, he opens with this: "And to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh, my God, and you, I trust." Here we have the man described as the man after God's own heart, uh, lifting up his own heart. It's as if David is holding up his heart with his hands to heaven, saying, Here I am, Lord, completely surrendered to you. It's this upward motion with his whole body, his whole mind, his whole being engaged. David would often begin his, his psalms and his poems with this sort of declaration. Not so much to move God, but to move this earthbound burrowing mole, to move himself. And it seems that there's this real connection, really, between um, the lifting of David's heart and the giving of his trust to God. Our trust unites us to God and then draws us near to him. There's something about the simple, the giving of our simple trust. To God that seems to move His heart, and it is a true reflection of the humble, sacrificial, and passionate worship we see in heaven. I'm going to land with this. Um, a few back, few weeks back, as a community, we had this chance to, or uh, well, this season of focused prayer, where we joined with um, thousands of Christians all around the world uh, in this season called Thy Kingdom Come, where we were invited to. Um, choose five members of our family or friends um, to pray for them that they would come into contact with the loving presence of Jesus. And I know a whole bunch of us um, got in on this, um, maybe a bunch of us did the leather strap thing, mine snapped halfway through, but it still, still vaguely uh, kind of works. This idea of keep being able to keep our friends um, in our hearts as we hold them before God. I don't know how you found it, but I personally found this little season quite um, confronting, in some ways. Of course, I love praying for my people, but um, there was just kind of this question that kept coming back to me, that kept nagging and eating away. And the question was, do I actually think that God could reach these people? Do I actually think that God could reach these people? I don't know if anyone relates to that. And the second question was, if he did, and they were to come to St. Augustine's, uh, what would they make of it all? What would they make of us? How would that go? Oh, funnily enough, my cousin and his wife did actually turn up, and um, they turned up to St. Augustine's in January, so before we were doing this thing, it wasn't really connected to that. As far as I'm aware, they're not really interested in um, churchy stuff. Um, I don't know why, they'd recently moved to Auckland, so maybe they were just coming to hang out and make some friends. Um, they haven't been back, um, so I'm, I need to do the follow-up on that, but um, it, does kind of, it does kind of get me a bit stirred up and fired up around, um, yeah, what, is it, what does it mean to welcome people into the great big family of God? And I'm convinced, I think more than ever, that what people don't need is something that's cool. They don't need something that's slick. They don't need something that's perfect. Uh, But they do need something that is real. And when I say real, I mean it's, they need to touch reality. They actually need to touch reality. They need to encounter reality. Reality is a person. Of course, they need to be noticed. Of course, they need to be invited, welcomed in, drawn into community. Yes to all of that great stuff. That's absolutely critical, and I think we do a wonderful job of that. But ultimately, I'm convinced that they need to find themselves within a family, a whānau who are actively seeking to remove ourselves from the centre of our little universe and placing our trust in the hands of the creator and sustainer of the entire universe. This is the heart of reality-based worship. This is the heart of worship that is uh, grounded in reality. It's the people of God in the presence of God pouring out our praise to God. I've been so inspired by these words from the American preacher, A.W. Tozer. He says this, I'm looking for the fellowship of the burning heart. Men and women of all generations everywhere who love the Saviour until adoration becomes the music of their soul. I love that. Stir something in me. The fellowship of the burning heart. I think that's a wonderful description of what it is to, to gather together to worship. The fellowship of the burning heart. That our hearts would burn. This kind of hunger for God. This kind of response to God. This kind of intimacy with God. When we do this all together as whanau. It creates uh, an environment that is, it is, firstly, it's nourishing to our, our lives. It's deeply nourishing to our own lives. But the main point really is, I think, it's the very environment that those who are yet to walk uh, through those doors up there so desperately need. They need an environment in which they can encounter reality himself. So that's really the challenge, challenge to us, the invitation to us, to exert all our powers, to lift up our hearts, adding our little melodies and our harmonies of trust to the great cosmic symphony. This is the kind of worship that makes the invisible visible. This is the kind of worship that makes reality real, right here on earth as it is in heaven.